Welcome to Arrested DevOps, Episode 40, Building an Ops Team. I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Hey, you're not Matt. That's what I just said. (laughs) This is the first ever episode of ADO that Matt couldn't join. So I'm your co-host, Bridget Kremhout, at Bridget Kremhout on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining our cloud services team at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is also sponsored by VictorOps. From initial alarm to final retrospective, the mission of VictorOps is to make on-call suck less. Easily integrate with your existing monitoring systems and manage on-call schedules with rules for intelligent routing. In the live infrastructure timeline, get real-time context and see annotated alarms with resolution documentation. And when you're in the firefight, collaboratively troubleshoot using native chat or bi-directional integrations with your favorite chat clients. Visit arresteddevops.com slash victorops and sign up for a 14-day free trial to see how they're making on-call suck less. Today we're going to be talking with three great guests, starting with charity majors of Parse and or Facebook. Charity, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your background? I am an accidental computer, basically. I never set out to do this. I was a classical piano performance major in college, and then I dropped out because I realized I really love computers and fixing things, and also I really love making money. Money is really nice. <laughs> Pianists, not so much on the money making. So right now, I, I was the first infrastructure hire at Parse. We were acquired by Facebook about two years ago. So I handle all of the backend operations and DBA work for over half a million mobile apps, basically. Uh, and I have a team of seven engineers who are amazing. Thank you, Charity. And now a repeat engagement with Team Etsy. So uh, MCR, Patrick, tell us your stories. I'm Patrick McDonald. I'm um, one of the web operations managers at Etsy. Been there about five years now. Um, I was a pretty early hire on the team and uh, was actually hired in as as an individual contributor to that for a couple years before getting over to management. So I have a bit of that that story of the the transition and the building and all of that stuff. Hey there, uh, Mike and Betsy. Uh, I am the VP of Technical Operations at Etsy. Joined Etsy in 2008. Um, I was one of the first um, new ops people in 2008. There were only two of us, and the team has since grown to over 50 that um, I'm responsible for, which includes day-to-day operations, um, all of our corporate infrastructure, our data centers around the world, as well as our security team, DBAs, and uh, working for great people like Patrick. Um, and making sure that the team has what they need from a day-to-day perspective. All right. So we're talking today about building an ops team. So it sounds like maybe we should start with, okay, Mike, Charity, you've done this. Uh, maybe Charity, if you want to start with your perspective on where do you even start? Yeah, that's a really good question because um, it's <laughs> it's hard, right? There's a lot of really fierce competition for really great engineers. I mean, I would say you should start with the question, do you actually need an ops team? Because there are a lot of places out there who think they need traditional operations engineers uh, when all they really need is someone to really care about their infrastructure. And that doesn't have to be someone who has really strong traditional operations engineering strengths. You know, I mean, the DevOps movement (laughs) 
is a, as a buzzword. I can't really get over how much I still really hate it. <laughs> but like if you're a tiny shop and you have like half a dozen engineers and you're not doing anything that is really pushing the bounds of, you know, scalability or reliability or security, you probably don't need an ops team. Just wanting to not get paged in the middle of the night is not a good enough reason to start hiring operations engineers. You should have you should have actually genuinely hard operations problems before you even start looking to hire engineers. All right, I I see so, Mike I see Mike uh, nodding at that. Um, so as an early ops person at Etsy, has that matched? How well does that map with your experience? Um, so I definitely agree. I think that the early startup of a company really kind of um, allows you to have that flexibility that Charity is talking about, right? Taking a look at what the problem is that you're solving for is always a good thing, right? You take a step back, and for a lot of companies these days, um, compared to when I started in the field, most people are starting on AWS, right? They're starting inside of this, um, this environment where they have the flexibility to not fully immerse themselves in what traditional ops is and what they do. And I think that taking a look at building an ops team really does depend upon where your company is in its life cycle, right? So if you're in a very early life cycle, it may not make sense um, to enter into the world of competition, as, as Charity mentioned, right? The, the ops competition of trying to find uh, good hires is definitely very competitive. Um, it's not impossible, but it's definitely competitive. So you may want to lean more towards um, someone who has a focus of dev, and and I agree the the whole buzz term of DevOps is a is a it, for me I'm like oh DevOps right and and being involved in the DevOps community for me it's just a culture it's a way of working and a way of how you get things done in the long run and how you respect other people inside of your organization. But <clears throat> back to the question at hand, I feel that making the decision to hire traditional ops, and I keep saying traditional ops, but let's say operational-minded folks who are used to running data centers is not necessarily always the right choice um, depending upon where the company is. As you grow and as you start hitting some of those scalability problems that you know Charity talked about, or um, you have um, other security concerns, or you have, oh, we're gonna do this or that, and we need more um, manpower or just power in general, um, I think that it's important to to take a look at what the problem is you're solving for, because once you start down that path, it's um, it's it's not a hard one, but you have to maintain it, and you have to grow the team, you have to grow the individuals, you have to grow the culture, and I feel that that um, takes time and effort that in a startup phase may take away from the goal of actually getting the company off of the ground. So. And it can let your so, developers be really lazy too, right? Yeah. Like if you don't hold them responsible for the reliability and the maintainability of their own code, if you're just like, oh, we're going to solve this problem by hiring an ops team, uh, that's probably the wrong answer. Like you should have a much more specific goal and vision than that. So Charity, you had said specifically, uh, so you have a hard operations problem. Can you tell me what you mean by a hard operations problem as a as a uneducated developer who who may cause some occasionally cause some of those issues you just mentioned? Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, so, for example, reliability is a thing. Um, you know, anyone should be capable of of you know building and maintaining and being responsible for reliable service. But if like the core of your business revolves around having more than you know three three and a half nines. Uh, you probably some, want someone with deep expertise in, in, in making that happen. Uh, if you are scaling incredibly fast, you know, if you are 
uh, 2xing, 3xing, 5xing, 10xing year over year, then you need people uh, with deep expertise and, and like a history of scaling systems really fast. Um, I come from a history of I've never actually worked on a team that had a dedicated DBA team. Like operations is always included being DBA. So if you're doing something new and exciting with your databases, you want people to be focused on making that work really well. Um, and I think another area is deep security concerns. Like security is a is an operational a specialty that needs a lot of expertise if that I mean this all comes back to like what is the mission of your business right your responsibility is to make your mission succeed now if your mission is to run a, a website uh, that doesn't deal with a lot of e-commerce or whatever you don't need to hire someone who has deep security specialties if your mission is to build a service that is growing steadily but not you know exponentially your mission does not require hiring someone who has the specific expertise of rapid scalability so i think it comes back to like really deeply understanding your mission and looking for people who can fill those strengths rather than looking for people who uh lack weaknesses so I'm really, I find this fascinating from a perspective of scaling both your team and scaling like your infrastructure while looking at your mission. And it was interesting that you mentioned retail because obviously Etsy is in that space. Um, Patrick, can you address when you came on board, like at what point during Etsy's scaling you came on board and how that intersected with how the team was scaling? Sure. Um, I think I came on board when the company was about 120 employees in 2010. The ops team was, I believe, four people at the time, um, and we actually were, we had a bunch of hires come on right around that same time. Um, but one of the things, you know, I guess one of the things that uh, we already had the luxury of was having a bit of an ops team already formed. And I think luxury is kind of a good word because having ops people kind of is a luxury. You know, it's... Um, when you're when you're first starting, you know, a business, usually, um, you know, it's great if you can spend time like really thinking about the mission statement, who you want to hire based off of that. But a lot of companies are sort of just going with the flow. They're they're scaling as quick as they need to, and they're scaling with who they have on hand. So I think that given where we were, um, you know, we already made some some decisions. Like we had already decided that we're building this on bare metal infrastructure. Um, of course, back then the cloud was a little bit less. Uh, in everyone's face, so you know, companies were often going the more traditional route there. Um, we already had a pretty decently functioning network, um, which wasn't the case a couple of years before that. Um, but kind of by the time I had come in, uh, things were things were kind of stabilizing. So um, I think at that point, that's right around when we were really starting to focus on uh, what what the culture should look like. Right um, there was. We all kind of had ideas of where we wanted it to go, um, but I think that um, it wasn't really until we we passed a certain barrier, you know, a certain um, level of, of comfortability with our infrastructure, um, a certain um, you know understanding and having the right talent on board that we really were able to sit down and focus on those things. So I kind of came on right right around that time. Um, and it's, it's been a pretty crazy ride. The team's, you know, scaled four or five times up from that since then. Um, and yet, I think 
what we did back then, um, we're actually still doing a pretty good job carrying that forward today um, and making so it kind of seems like a, a smaller team um, and uh, it has a really solid culture. I think you said a couple of things that were really interesting, which is that having the time to think, having an ops team already is a luxury. I totally will not disagree with you there. And having the time to think about your mission is kind of a luxury too. Because um, you're right, like most startups fail. And most startups do not fail uh, because they had insufficiently awesome ops teams, right? They fail for exter external reasons or for you know leadership and vision reasons or for funding reasons or for totally random reasons. Uh, so getting to care about those things and getting to actually guide you know the culture and um, and the direction of your technical team is totally a luxury. I think that's really important to call out. So uh, another piece that it, I think we're kind of we're kind of gearing towards here with the way we're uh, discussing this. One of the things we had outlined was talking about we're talking about everything being related to code now. Infrastructure is code. Obviously, your code your software code itself is code. I mean, the idea we were going to discuss is what what is an ops team now, but what we're talking about needing to hire to the to the need you actually have, and not necessarily to the 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 general bucket that everyone talks about being a developer or being a, an ops person. Really, like you said, you need a security engineer to address your PCI concerns, or you need um, you need someone who's familiar with the cloud so that you can discuss how to scale in the cloud. Do you think it's it's less about the bucket and more about the person? It's funny. I mean, people can learn. People are are you know hopefully they can learn or they want to learn, and and that passion is is yeah. great. I think that one of the one of the areas that we focus in when we actually hire, we actually have been building, you know, this the operations team, which is very wide in terms of responsibilities and what they do and where they focus, is is that it is about the people. You know, the the glue that holds a team together is how well people interact with one another, how well they respect each other. Are they able to actually walk up to another teammate and say, hey, look, that statement that you made, I really didn't like too much. Let's have a conversation about that and figure out <clears throat> how we're going to continue to work together to whatever that end goal is, right? And that end goal can change every three months, six months, year. It depends, again, on the company. But at the heart of it, if you have a team that bonds together, if you have a team that is, is, is capable of working out their problems, whether it's around language, whether it's around how people perceive each other, I think that you're going to build a long-lasting operational team. You're going to build a long-lasting development team. You're going to build a long-lasting manage, long management team that can adjust together at the chaos that is the Internet that we all live in today. And I think that when you actually do go through through your hiring process, for us at least, and I'll, I'll talk about us, that's a really big component when we do hire someone, you know, and, and it, it doesn't matter what job they're in, we do very heavily weigh on the, the, the cultural aspects, how people um, uh, interact with one another, whether it's um, negotiation, conflict resolution, things along those lines. So I think that, you know, out of your question, that's what popped into my head. I was like, yeah, technical skills are great, and there has to be a level of technical skills depending upon what job you're hiring for. But at the end of the day, do you get along with the person? And when you don't get along with the person, 
do you feel as though you're going to be able to actually work through that with them? That is something that I, I hold very important because let's face it, we all say silly things sometimes. I, I certainly do. And that's not, you know, who I am all the time. But if you have someone who can come up and say to you, hey, look, this is not cool. This wasn't kosher with me. And the person on the other end receiving that feedback can turn around and say, you know what? You're totally right. I didn't see that perspective. I apologize. Thank you for calling me out. And they walk away with a bit more knowledge and you have that bond and that, 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 that experience with someone. That's what you build good ops teams on. That's what you build any good team on, quite frankly. Let me ask the, the, the question that falls onto that. How do you interview for that? Because that's, that's something I'm trying to figure out also. Um, and so I, I've been working with one of my coworkers to kind of put together, we're, we're calling it the Socratic interview method to, to force people to reveal their thinking um, through conversation and expose, would, would those cultural concerns be an issue? Because, you know, most of the people who come in are people who are, are willing to learn and are capable of learning, you're absolutely right. It comes down to can you be a, a member of the team and kind of fit into the culture? So, um, I mean, Patrick can certainly jump in and, and help out with this if, if I leave anything out. But um, to say that we got it right 100% of the time would be a total lie, right? I mean, you're not going to get it right all the time. Um, and it's a learning process even during interviewing, um, during hiring that you go through. So, um, you know, we, we certainly do break up within the process. Um, people have certain focuses, whether they're technical or whether they're cultural. Um, the questions that we have um, are, are, are certainly focused around things like, for example, tell me about a time when you had an awkward situation when you were working and how did you actually resolve that situation? Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised you'd be surprised how many people are like, yeah, I had this conflict because someone said something and, and we dive into that and we go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper. Um, so questions like that. Um, we also look at writing skills. We also look at communication skills um, in a variety of different ways from whether it's a homework with essay style questions um, in addition to just in-person interviews. Um, and ICs are interviewed a little bit different than managers. Yeah, yes. I'm a big fan of, of soliciting a wide range of interviewing feedback and interviewing types because there's no one template that everyone is going to fit. I totally agree with what you were saying, uh, Mike, about uh, and Bridget. Operations engineers, good ops engineers, are good at learning things. Like one of my pet peeves in this industry is the laundry list of technical skills that you're expected to have coming into the door for any given job. You know, like when I started at Parse, I had never used uh, Chef, Ruby, AWS, Mongo, Cassandra, Redis. Like the list just goes on and on and on. And that was absolutely no barrier to success. And I was fortunate that, you know, they didn't go, oh, we're, we're like a Mongo and Chef shop and you've never seen these technologies. So therefore, you're not capable of doing this job. It's like, no, that was one of the most exciting periods of my career was just learning all this stuff at once. This is why I do ops. I like learning new things, you know? And so so on the one hand, it's really easy to screen for specific things that you already understand and you expect someone to already understand, but it's also like the laziest form of interviewing because someone already having been exposed to any given question or any given problem set is not, it's like they say in the financial world, you know, past performance is, is no predictor of future results or whatever. 
right? Uh, and there are some people who are really good at written communications and some people are really good at thinking on their feet and like problem solving on the spot. Some of us completely freeze up. I really like to give at least 50% of the questions that I want to talk about to the candidate ahead of time, right? Give them a little bit of time to like think about it in a non-pressury environment and, you know, work out some, you know, preliminary stuff before, before, you know, interacting with me in a very formal setting. I think you want people to be bringing the self that you're going to be working with on a daily basis, not the self that is uh, freaking out and wondering how they're being perceived and totally stressed out, right? And anything that you can do to make it a, a more welcoming environment, it it helps you people perform at their best, which is what you want them to be doing as your potential coworker, right? And I, I also, I think it was, a, it was a Ben Horowitz, the guy who wrote uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, he said recently, he's like, you know, if I was given the choice between interviewing someone for a few hours or just getting, you know, feedback from people who had worked from it with them before, I would take the feedback and no interview any day of the week. And like, I couldn't agree more. Um, in Silicon Valley, it's kind of a, it's a small town, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I find that like, uh, reaching out to people who have worked with the people that I'm going to be interviewing gives me so much valuable information. And it's like the highest signal to noise ratio if you can get it as far as how good someone is going to be as a coworker. Though, of course, that brings us to the problems of like selecting people from our networks and culture fit and all that sort of thing oh, that can eliminate candidates that we otherwise would, you know, they would be great candidates, but we don't know them or know of them. So yeah. they don't get yeah. necessarily their fair shake. That's that's a really good point. Um, and, I, you know, that, that really does, I think, in many ways start with the job posting that you put out there. You know, making sure that it doesn't have biased language in it, making sure that there's nothing in there that makes people feel like uh, like you're an unapproachable company. Um, you know, really, you want to be as inviting as possible to keep on building that network. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of great places to meet people, too, um, you know, at, at events and conferences and everything, where you can start to get to know them, like Charity was saying, outside of the formal setting first. And uh, I, I find that we've had a really high success rate um, with hiring people that we've gotten to know through other channels first before actually bringing them in for, for the interview. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, too, because I know when I was first hired, the, the interview process was like really nothing like it is now. Obviously, a much smaller company is much less formalized. Um, I remember that uh, there was like a pretty big technical interview where I was just asked like a bunch of difficult questions. Um, and it was kind of like, I thought I didn't do very well, um, but apparently I, I did do pretty well as a, as a percentage of, of uh, or as a, as a percentile of the, the applicants. But I did think that um, as we've evolved, uh, we've, we've, we've moved really beyond, uh, we, we still obviously do technical interviews, but I think that most of the value of the interviewing we're, we're, uh, we're coming to find is in a lot of the questions that um, MCR was saying that, that he likes to ask. Things about like specific situations, um, times where you exampled certain, where you exhibited certain qualities. Um, 
in communicating, in leading, in you know all of these non-technical areas, because we all know that you know our, our skill set turns over so so quickly. Um, you don't really need to have someone that has deep experience with the exact flavor of the month database you're using or something. Um, you do need someone that understands what it means to work in that environment in a, you know a collaborative development operations environment and uh, knows how to get things done, essentially. Um, we also have another component of our interview process that we have this, we have this idea of Etsiness, um, as we call it, which is actually something that we're retooling right now, given that it, it obviously can be up to interpretation. Um, but as we continue to iterate on this, um, I think it's really important for people to have something like this, um, an idea, sort of a shared, a shared value set um, that you define that your company is looking for. Um, and making it pretty clear before the interview process what to expect from interviewers in order to pull that, um, you know, those, those qualities out of people and uh, be able to sort of evaluate them on that in a, in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I also think that, like, I value things like enthusiasm so highly. Like, if people are underinformed, whatever, like, you can make them informed. But if people don't care, if people are apathetic, if people like uh, so one of my um, main things that I look for in the interview is how people talk about their past jobs right like you ask them questions about their past roles and you know what they liked what what they didn't like what went well uh, how they reacted when something bad happened because something bad happens at every job you know like uh, like I, I try to look for a, a sense of like uh, they, they, they try to fix things, whether it's human things or technical things. Um, the, the sense of learned helplessness that, that just reeks off of, off of some people who have been in bad situations for a long time, you know, it, it sucks and it's like poison to a team if people don't feel empowered to ask questions and to probe and to, and to fail and to correct things and to make the team better. Like, I, I will take an energetic person who, who feels, you know, ownership over their over themselves and their environment like any day over someone who has a technically superior ability uh, like both of you are saying you know these, these soft skills um, are what make a team you know the, the technical skills may be what make it for a strong individual but the interpersonal skills are what make for a really powerful long-lasting team that can really execute on a mission so we have um, we have a saying right because everyone well Lots of people, I should say, not everyone, but lots of people have great ideas. Hey, we should do this. We should do that, right? And and to speak to your point about the enthusiasm or the willingness to go and, and, and take a problem and fix it, whether it's human or technical, absolutely. Couldn't echo that more. So the saying we have is patches welcome. It's like, hey, look, if you have a great idea and you think you could do it, do it. No one's going to hold you back from, from trying that new thing that you think is going to be awesome for a set of VM servers. Like, go for it. Like, Prove it out, build a prototype, and you know it's it's basically a human-centric engineering approach. Where if <clears throat> excuse me, where a human being who has the idea, we don't ever want to dismiss that idea. We may find out later it's maybe not the best idea, but for for that initial um, energy, that initial passion, that willingness to get in there and try and do something, patches welcome. Get in there. Let's do it. Let show me how that thing works. I am more than willing to say I am not the smartest person in the room. And most times I'm not, which is totally fine. 
But if there's an idea that we can foster and we can build together as a team, let's do it. Let's see how that works. And, and I totally agree and echo that I would take that any day as well. I think, you know, our, our jobs are really, when we're talking about defining what our roles are, well, in the end, your role is really, it should be optimally to do whatever is best for the business, um, regardless of, you know, what you think your job description is. And if you have an idea that's going to further the business, you should absolutely go after it. Um, and I think we, we do a pretty good job of encouraging uh, that at Etsy, certainly a lot of like um, interdepartmental collaboration on things. And um, like we're doing our Hack Week right now, for instance, and uh, there's everyone in the company participates in that Hack Week, absolutely everyone. Um, so you get ideas coming from all sorts of different people and you get these big teams from all different departments that work together to create awesome hacks. Um, and I think that that kind of spirit needs to be always uh, fostered in, in the day-to-day -day setting too. Okay, so that kind of leads us towards, we've talked a lot about the great qualities we're looking for and want to encourage individuals, but as managers, I'm wondering if you can all address, um, maybe starting with Charity, all address the actual, you know, hands-on role of the manager in making this stuff happen. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think it... <laughs> depends, <laughs> right? It depends on the size of the team, the size of the org, and the specific characteristics of, of the individual manager, right? You have some managers who are, like my, my archetype as a manager is I tend to go in as the early engineer, um, build up the infrastructure, hire a team, and segue into management roles, uh, and then get bored a couple years later and do it all over again, right? <laughs> so I know my archetype. Uh, <laughs> there, there are other super valuable archetypes. You know, I, I feel that like as the team grows, um, it's doing the team a disservice if the manager uh, stays in the critical path of the technology, right? You have to take yourself out. It doesn't mean you can't still do technical work. Like I, I find it so uh, rewarding and relaxing and grounding to do real technical work. Uh, but I, like around the point where there were like four or five people in my team, I realized I was holding everyone back. If I still tried to be the tech lead for everything and like reviewing disks before they got shipped, right? Because I'm getting pulled out to different kind of crises, right? I went from firefighting on the platform all the time to getting pulled into ad hoc meetings about things like branding and marketing and cross-functional calibrations and crap and like it isn't fair for my team to be gated on me I shouldn't I should never expect them to do that and, and I would be holding them back in their technical development if I clung to the role of like tech lead and person who is driving the technical roadmaps and person who is like the expert at everything. It's A, impossible, and B, not desirable. Like, nobody wants to work for a manager who doesn't give them, like, the space and the breath to, to grow and to lead things and to make mistakes and to develop into a more senior engineer. So, like, I would say in the early stages, right, like, if you're lucky as a startup, you have an early hire who can take on, who can grow into that manager mantle and who is willing to put down uh, the, the technical lead stuff that they started out doing in larger and more I don't even know where to put Etsy on the on the spectrum between startup and like Facebook but at Facebook they're just like you're a manager you don't fucking do technical work like you it's, it's like you get to you get a demerit 
if you're doing technical work because your job is your people. Your job is tending to each person's career trajectory and making sure that they know how they can improve, how they can meet the expectations, how they can get to the next level, how they can grow as an engineer into a more senior role and you're cheating your team the more time you spend on technical things and that's that's not a role that I personally um, really want to play which is why I stick to like the smaller and middle games and I'm not like a director at Facebook so those are my thoughts so yes I'll let Patrick uh, talk about where he is in the org and his level um, I think for me there, there comes a point in time when you do take that manager path, right? And you have that fork. And, and something that you, you were talking about, Charity, kind of sparked the idea of motivation in my head and what motivates people to, to work. And I feel that my job is to help motivate, help set up guardrails, and then let people get it done. Let them kind of explore how they're going to do it. If they hit a bump here, maybe they bounce over to here. But the, the path of which, you know, the direction that we're going is certainly something that I feel a, a manager, a director, a VP needs to take a step back um, and to let people succeed and fail and learn from those failures in order to grow themselves, in order to grow the organization, so on and so forth. Um, I, you know, I, 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 for whatever reason, Daniel Pink's book, Drive, pops into my head about motivation and how to motivate people from moving from an old carrot and stick, you know, you do this, you're going to get this, to the, to the three pieces of science that motivate human beings, right? And and that's the, you know, the autonomy to, to do what you want to do and how you're going to do it. Obviously guardrails, right? Make sure you're not totally going off the reservation, even though sometimes that might be fun. Um, to the mastery of it. Um, are you learning? Are you are you investing the time? And and as a manager, as a leader, am I empowering people to actually spend that time to become masterful of something? It could be code, it could be consent, it could be anything you you listed earlier, like technically, or on the other side, the human skills that people always need to work on. I do, everyone does, and and then find the purpose. Finally, the purpose. Do people find that they that what they're doing has a purpose? And at the end, do they feel comfortable? of what they did, how they did it, what they learned. So for me, it, it's funny, people, uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty awkward about saying that I'm a VP. Um, and, and the reason why is that I'll just be like, hey, I'm head packet and paper pusher. You know, like I just, <laughs> I'm there to provide the tools for people to do their jobs and to make sure that along the way, if there is a concern or there is a problem, that they feel as though they have a safe outlet to come to, to talk about things and, um, and, and know that they're going to be helped, not that they're going to be screamed at, not that they're going to be yelled at or, or any of these other horrible stories that I've heard during, you know, any sort of conference interview process, anything like that. So I feel from my perspective, that's really my job in a lot of ways. Um, so. Packet and paper pusher. Are these, are these TCP or UDP packets? Well, if they're UDP, you'll never get the paper. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get the reality check from Patrick. You work for this mic guy. Tell us your perspective. Um, yeah, I, I have to, I really do agree, especially with what Mike was saying at the end, um, the, where the manager's role is really, uh, it's a facilitator. Um, my job is to essentially take some of the, you know, Plan obviously business requirements, you know, with uh, you know the entire organization, 
bring that to the team level and say, all right, here's what our goals look for the year. But pretty much outside of that, everyone should just be doing what they think they need to do. And it's kind of for me to remove obstacles that come into their way, um, to you know make sure that I can smooth things out if need be. But really, um, it's it's an encourage it's to encourage and to allow people to reach their full potential. And and at, at Etsy, actually, we do something quite nice where we um, I think a lot of companies are starting to do this. But you have the uh, the kind of the traditional view that management is uh, sort of like a, a super layer on top of um, the ranking file, right? Um, but what we do is we have two separate and equal career paths. Um, individual contributor track, manager track. So when you go from, let's say, a senior engineer, let's say a, an individual contributor three, right, you're actually sidestepping into a manager three. You're not going up because you might have proved yourself in one arena, but you are really acquiring a completely new set of skills. You're moving into a different career entirely, and you're not going to be awesome at it from day one. No no chance. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of mistakes that um, you sort of have to have to have to roll with, and uh, it does need to be, like Mike said, you need to be constantly learning and um, acquiring new knowledge about what it means to be uh, a modern manager. And um, I think that you'll you'll end up if you're really listening to your people, you're gonna you're gonna learn anyway just through them, um, because they will be they'll be the first to tell you what you're doing well, what you're not. Um, and the, the transition has been really nice, um, to, to management for me, I think, because of how Mike has allowed me to basically, he's given me enough leeway to make mistakes I need to make, um, and to build myself up. Um, I remember one time I brought a problem to him and he was just like, well, take care of it then, you know, that's what I pay you for. <laughs> and I knew at that point, like I crossed the line and it was like, all right. I now have the trust to just execute on this, um, and I think that's that's really what I'm trying to do for for all of my reports as well is to get to that point where they just say, "All right, I know Patrick says I can just run with it, and it's all going to be good, and he's got my back." Yeah, Patrick kind of touched on this, but I I think I want to just say it like super plainly. I think you have to say again and again and again and again to your org that uh, management is not a promotion. It's a career change. Like, and people will forget it, and new people coming in won't have heard it, and and people won't believe it. <laughs> so you have to keep repeating it. It is not a promotion. You are not being promoted to management. You are doing a career change. This means you're responsible for a different set of deliverables. You have a different set of skill sets to build, and you are not superior to your reports, right? This is important for a lot of reasons. Number one, because it's true. Uh, but also because if you don't emphasize this, uh, you don't build a compelling story for how ICs reach their full potential, like without eventually, inevitably having to become managers. Lots of people don't want to do that. Uh, lots of people want to do that but shouldn't do that. Lots of people, uh, you know, would be better off becoming better and better and stronger ICs um, while still building their leadership skills because manager and leader is not synonymous, right? There are so many ways to exercise leadership skills that don't involve having direct reports. Now, I, I, you've, you've made me question how I want to ask my question. <laughs> um, 
so when you're a small company and you're the only person on a team, how do you how do you balance bringing on more people with the emergence of a leader with the eventual need to instead of instead of having a lead, just a leader you wind up needing a manager and that is, that is a separate role how do you how do you manage that transition when you when you're growing uh, wow this is so situational right um, it's really hard to predict how a situation will evolve when you don't know the personalities who are going to be there I think that the that's true. Right. I think that it's usually easiest for the team. It's it's most natural. It 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 feels the most organic if a leader can emerge from the crowd, even if it takes extra mentoring, extra support, extra training, or whatever. That's not always possible. It's been possible everywhere that I've worked because this is something that I naturally do. So I can't really uh, speak to the flip side. Uh, Mike, maybe you can. I'll go back to stages of the company in, in some ways. I, I think that in the early stages, you know, working towards a goal and everyone working together is, is really where leaders emerge. Um, managers, for me, um, I'm not sure if people know this or not, but I actually was lucky enough to be able to hire my boss, who's John Allspach. So I think, you know, John was an advisor uh, before he was at Etsy. So he and I kept in contact and, and we were able to create a, um, you know, sort of a, a relationship earlier. And I think at a certain point, having a manager, having a, um, whatever the definition of a manager is that we just all went through, having that person come in, in, into an organization could be the most disruptive thing that anyone will do, right? It's, it's, it's also the scariest thing, um, hiring a new manager to come in versus some people growing inside of an organization. So again, going back to how we hire and how we look at people and um, how we interview and what we look for, things like that, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. I mean, it's worked out pretty well for me, I think. Um, and I think that you as, a, as an individual and, and the company, you'll get to a point where you will need to hire a manager. You will need to have someone in charge of empowering people to do their job, providing them with the tools, looking at strategy, looking at longer term um, goals and objectives. And that's not something to shy away from, but being flexible enough to understand when you need to actually have that. Um, and that's always the tough part is when you make that decision. Um, I can't say when the right time or wrong time is for anyone, but I think that as long as a company, as long as a group of people are feeling that that is the right time, then that's the right time, you know, and if it's not, you, you learn to adjust, but um, you'll get to that point where you need a manager. You know? Yeah, totally. I feel like there's a real divide here between how do you grow uh, a technical lead into a team manager versus how do you find and sort for amazing, compelling, charismatic executives like Allspa, who, God damn it. I wish I could have Allspa as a boss. Don't I mean? Don't we all wish we could report to John Allspa? Can we just agree to clone him and then everybody gets an Allspa? Everybody gets an Allspa. <laughs> I feel you like get that's an all, a, you get an Allspa. You, you get an Allspa. You get an Allspa. Yeah, if only, if only that would work. Yeah, um, I think it's really important not to conflate leadership with management um, because a leader is a leader regardless of. Um, what their what their title is, and I think management is more uh, a necessary evil in many ways. That 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 it's a layer that comes into existence typically when the organization gets to a certain size and requires it. Um, but 
one of the things that you know I like to ask if someone says that they're interested in becoming a manager, I like to immediately ask, well, what do you think you can accomplish as a manager that you can't accomplish as as an individual contributor? Um, and a lot of times, I actually find that uh, a person might actually not realize that they might lose some influence moving into the management role um, because of you know how they're positioned amongst their peers uh, as an individual contributor. They're already leaders, um, and they're, because they're two different careers, you you can be a leader in one space, not necessarily the other. Um, so there's a lot of things to think about there, certainly, and. Uh, when the, with a smaller organization, I think leaders emerge pretty clearly. Um, with a bigger one, though, you sort of have to find ways to, as Charity was saying, like mentor them and encourage them. Um, and what we do at Etsy, we have a, a, a program called Learning and Development, and uh, well, it's really a department. And we have all sorts of you know training programs and uh, dens and and various other uh, you know classes and workshops and stuff that you can attend regardless of um, your role really um, and we have something called a, a, a leadership intensive too which is kind of where um, you it's it's sort of to, to groom someone to p potentially move into management down the line or really just to um, kind of help someone that is kind of a leader in the technical space to, to kind of boost their um, their you know management type qualities so uh, having these programs, I think, is really important um, if you do have a potential, uh, you know, manager emerging. Um, and, you know, throwing people into the fire, yes, it's it's how we most of us learn most of the time. Um, but that's not really the best path to take. I remember that when I was moving into management, um, Mike would just drop books off at my desk and say, "You should read this," you know. And this was before it actually happened. Um, this was kind of, you know, in the ramp up too, so that I kind of had some good ideas and we had one-on-ones and talked about what the transition would look like before it actually happened. So when I actually got there, I felt like um, I was in a good spot. So I think having that support network is really important. Yeah, I think having a support network is uh, is definitely something that's valuable. Uh, we're, we are getting close to the end of our hour, though, so let's, uh, let's uh, wrap things up a bit. We have so many things we want to talk about, and we always say we're going to do follow-up episodes, and that's usually a lie, um, kind of <laughs> like the sushi in our last episode. We did an episode we called Eating Sushi with Andrew Clay Schaefer. There was no sushi. It was very sad. Um, but uh, what I guess there's, there's so many topics around, you know, how you manage and guide and review and pay and recruit people that I feel like I could just kind of throw a general question to all three of you. Um, one at a time, please give us your absolute best advice to someone who may find themselves in the position of building an ops team. The, the stakes are pretty high when you're first starting out. Um, and I think, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to make bad hires uh, early because they're, they're, they can cause a lot of damage. So I think when you're when you're moving into building an ops team, really focusing on hiring good people, hire people you like, hire people that you trust, hire people that um, maybe they don't, maybe they need to do a little bit more, you know, research, maybe spend a little more time on Stack Exchange than than, than the next person, but you know that they're going to get the job done the way that uh, you need it to get done, and they're going to do it, and they're going to be nice, they're not going to be assholes. Um, and that's okay, you know, like you should be able to say, 
we're going to sacrifice maybe some of some of some of these like I think people are tempted, you know, to to jump in and be like, I need to hire the most senior person I can find. They got to be able to do everything. And in reality, like that's often really not um, the place you want to start. Those are kind of people that you want to acquire toward the toward the more mature stage when you actually have um, a place for people like that. So um, I think also just talk to people that you know are already running successful op teams, ops teams, and find out how they did it and ask for their advice. Can't hurt to talk. I would say if you are really trying to build a team, uh, build your networks. You know, go to meetups, talk to people, and and don't just talk to the popular kids. Like, reach out to d diverse communities and like diverse crowds, and go like meet people who are who are doing cool and exciting things, who who are slightly off the beaten path. Like, the more people you know, the better you're going to be at hiring. It's it's kind of a, a a, a somewhat regrettable fact, as, as Bridget was saying, but I think that if you are conscious about the types of networks you're building, you can mitigate that to a large extent. Um, and I would say don't be afraid to take risks on people who seem enthusiastic and ambitious. Like when I love telling the story, but when we were at Linden Lab, um, we uh, our receptionist looked bored one day, and we started taking him to the Colo to rack servers with us. He's not one of the best network engineers that I know. And he was just he was just always there, always up for the next thing. And we were totally happy to like mentor him and offload shitty work onto him. And he just kept like kicking ass and like knocking it out of the park. And I've seen this happen so many times with people who didn't have formal schooling, who, you know, were English majors or like music dropouts like me. Like there's so much untapped potential out there that 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 the big companies aren't really utilizing or exploiting. And you know, if you're willing to take a risk on someone, it doesn't always work out, but a lot of times it does and the world is, is better off for it. Um, so I would look for untraditional like sources of talent um, and I believe in nurturing people and training them and learning together and collaboratively. And also I believe in poaching my friends from all their successful startups. If I had to give advice, um plus one to what everything that, you know, Charity and, and Patrick said, for sure. I think that that absolutely uh, echoes with me as well, um, no doubt. Um, the one thing I would say, um, or some additional advice, is if you are building an ops team, make sure that you address conflict. Make sure you create a safe space for the people that you do hire to have open, honest conversations with one another. Um, there's nothing more toxic to a team than people chatting behind other people's backs. And I think that all of the things that everyone has said today, um, as a leader or a manager or an individual contributor, from the highest to the lowest, I feel it's everyone's responsibility to create a safe environment where people can be open and honest with each other, where people can feel uh, comfortable enough in who they are, no matter who they are, to be able to approach and have conversations about things that they absolutely disagree with or things that they want to try, whether it's technical or whether it is uh, human-centric. And I feel that that is one of the many cornerstones that we've all said throughout this whole entire podcast that, that people should take away from here, is that it is everyone's responsibility to create an environment for people to learn and grow and feel comfortable. Thank you, everybody. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and move into checkouts. Um, Mike, you want to start us off? Definitely. Um, so the checkouts that I had were um, there. We, we run Elk at Etsy. Um, 
Elasticsearch log stash in Kibana. And recently we've had um, to move some things around and draining those servers of the data um, is a bit time consuming. So we open sourced a, a utility, um, Catherine Daniels uh, Beer Ops on Twitter. Um, we open sourced a, a utility that would actually help us when we're working on uh, draining the cluster. And my other checkout would be a 2012 Velocity talk from Dr. Richard Cook about how complex systems fail. It's always nice to go back and remind myself uh, once in a while that you know we all do work and live in a complex system that is the internet and it, that is not only uh, computers but also humans. So I would urge everyone, if you haven't seen it, go check that out as well. Thank you. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that the uh, all these notes are going to all these uh, links and checkouts will be in the show notes for uh, further review in the future. Um, Charity, you want to go next? Absolutely. I would like to share with everyone uh, a guided meditation for adults. It is. Uh, <laughs> it will make you feel much better. Breathe in strength. Breathe out bullshit. That is awesome. <laughs> it's a wonderful uh, video. <laughs> Patrick? Well, I guess we've been focusing on the theme of building teams. Um, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about maintaining teams. Um, and uh, one thing that's really been resonating for me for quite some time now, um, even from the months it's been uh, since Velocity, was uh, Dr. Christina Maslach's talk on burnout in tech. And um, it's a lot of times for reasons that you don't think it is, like it's really not mainly about how much work you have. It's much more about how much ownership you feel. Um, do you feel like you're in a safe environment? All these kind of things. Um, and I, I, I'll post a link to uh, a little self-assessment you can take. I think it's just fun to do this whether, um, whether you feel like you are in a burnout phase or whether you feel very comfortable. Um, it's like a five-minute little thing and, uh, and it kind of like scores you and you can get a good idea at like where your risk is for burning out. Um, and I, I think everyone should, I would encourage everyone to take that and sort of think a little bit more about what you can do to make, uh, make your job a little more tolerable every day. <laughs> nice, thank you. Uh, Bridget? Okay, so DevOps Days Minneapolis was this past week. Um, I'm editing the videos and getting them posted so everyone can enjoy the fabulous talks that we had. Um, I would encourage everybody to check those out. Uh, I can't even name one specific one that was the best because they're pretty much all the best. Um, but relevant to nice. the interests of the folks here, we did have Catherine Daniels from Etsy and John Cowie from Etsy talking at uh, DevOps Days Minneapolis, which was amazing. And John Cowie had a bonus rant at the end of his talk um, all about uh, privilege and inclusivity in tech. So everyone is going to have to watch that once I get that up. Nice. I guess that makes it my turn. <laughs> so uh, lately I've been, uh, I guess I just finished uh, Batman Arkham Knight, which was uh, quite fun. Uh, my computer was capable of running it, um, and I happened to get it before they stopped selling it on computer. <laughs> um, besides that, uh, there's a tool that's for a new Git client that somebody was showing me that is uh, currently invite-only called Git Kraken. As in, release the Kraken, but also get Kraken as a you know kind of a double entendre, which again wordplay always fun. So take a look at that. We've got some uh, conference updates as well. DevOps Days Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Ohio, Detroit, Raleigh, 
and Charlotte are all in the works. Take a look at devopsdays.org to get more information about those DevOps Days events. Oh, uh, and Stratton's not here, so I should mention Chicago. DevOps Days Chicago coming up August 25th and 26th. You can use the code ADO10 for 10% off registration. You should go. It'll be amazing. There's basically a ton of DevOps Days right now. Trevor As another Chicago in. <laughs> I will not be there, sadly. But, um, but DevOps Days Melbourne is going on right now, and there's you know, Boston coming up, um, all sorts of ones around the world as well. So definitely uh, worth checking out. Also, there's OSCON next week, so maybe it'll already be going on by the time uh, this is posted to iTunes. But I'll be speaking at that. You'll be at DevOps Days Chicago, Trevor. People can also find me at um, at OSCON, Velocity New York, Operability.io in London, and um, Velocity oh, I'll be at Operability too. Yay! Yay. So we'll be, we'll be seeing folks at a lot of different uh, conferences this year. Um, <laughs> and we have a newsletter, uh, if Matt ever sends it out. Matt isn't here to give himself a hard time about this, so I have to say it for him. ArrestedDevOps.com slash banana stand. I still haven't watched any uh, Arrested development. So <laughs> it's the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you dig that kind of thing. You can download it for free at arresteddevops.com slash iPhone. Thanks again to our sponsors, uh, 10th Magnitude and VictorOps. Be sure to thank them and visit them at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude and arresteddevops.com slash VictorOps. Thanks to Charity, Patrick, and Mike for joining us today. And thanks, as always, to our loyal listeners. If you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you'd visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We would also love to know if you've got any thoughts about upcoming episodes and any thoughts about this episode. You can leave comments for this episode at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 40. You can also check us out at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We're always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. So please let us know any ideas you have for future episodes. Uh, I'm Bridget at Bridget Crumhout. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We're Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. <laughs>